Monday morning, humans. Hello, humans. How are you? Ellie Krug here with Ellie 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled to be with you on this Monday morning. Um, I hope that the world is going well with you. I hope you had a great weekend. I am doing well, if you're, in case you were wondering. And I am thrilled to be with you for the next half hour on Ellie 2.0 Radio, where you know that if you are a regular listener, you know two things. One, that this show is about my practical idealism, about idealism in the world because we don't have enough of it anymore. And the other part of it is, um, the other thing I always say is, you are listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world, thus explaining why my voice does not match my name. All right, so I have two segments for the show on my A slot. Um, I want to talk about somebody that I recently discovered, somebody that I did not know and I did not understand um, completely. Well, I didn't know at all until I came across her as I was preparing the May issue of my monthly newsletter, The Ripple. And by the way, if you're not on the Ripple newsletter mailing list yet, you can go to my website at elliekrug.com and sign up for this newsletter that people love. We are approaching 4,500 people on my mailing list for my newsletter. So it's got some size to it. All right. So I have many blind spots in my life. Um, I, I would suspect that many of you do as well. And one of the things uh, that I missed um, was learning about um, black uh, authors, black writers. I don't know about you, but in college, uh, my only exposure to black writers was Richard Wright um, and his book Native Son, which actually played and loomed pretty large in my uh, college life because it was the very first writing a report about uh, Native Son was actually the very first A that I ever got in college. Um, and that that in and of itself was pretty big because it propelled me to get a lot more A's because it t showed me that I could do it. But that's neither here nor there. So I want to speak about another uh, black writer, a woman uh, who is not very well known. Her name is Zora Neale Hurston. I'm going to just call her Zora here. Um, she has left her mark, and she's gotten, I'll explain to you why she got on my radar in a second. Zora was born in Alabama in 1891, and she was raised in Eatonville, uh, Florida. Now, you may not know this, but Eatonville, Florida, is one of the very first um, all-black incorporated towns in America following uh, the cessation of slavery. It turns out that slavery touched Zora's life uh, very uh, closely in a number of ways, beginning with the fact that all four of her grandparents had been born into slavery. So think about that. You're growing up in the, at the end of the 19th century, ending, entering the 20th century, and all four of your grandparents had been slaves. And so... Um, uh, I think that that's important to our story. So she grows up in Eatonville, Florida. Um, and as a girl, there was a watershed moment that she had when uh, teachers from the North came to visit Eatonville. And when they did, they met, um, Zora met them, and they gave her a number of books, books that she apparently did not have access to um, as a student in uh, Eatonville. And those books are something that she later on described as her birth 
um, the, her real birth at age, uh, which she's calling it, she, this happened to her when she was 10 years old, her real birth. And after that, she was on a pathway to becoming a writer in her own right. So she, um, uh, she later recounted what it was like growing up in Eatonville in a 1928 essay titled, How It Feels to Be Colored Me. Um, but Zora had a rich life filled with many detours. Um, due to family and other circumstances, she didn't graduate from high school until age 28, and by that time she was living in Baltimore. She then went to study at Howard University in 1918 and co-founded the student newspaper. She started publishing poetry um, while she was at Howard and uh, got a, an associate's degree. From there, um, she attracted the attention of a trustee at Barnard College, which was affiliated with Columbia University in New York. That Barnard College trustee arranged for Zora to attend Barnard College, where she then became the college's sole black student. So you have a, you have a, a woman who is the granddaughter of slaves, uh, who then becomes the first black student at a very well-respected uh, American college. While she was at Barnard, she met um, a number of different people in the anthropology department, including Margaret Mead. And then she went on to study, um, after graduating from Barnard, went on to study anthropology at Columbia. She was living in Harlem in the 1920s and hung out with very famous black writers and poets, including Langston Hughes, um, County Cullen, Cullen, and Richard Wright. From there, she did several things in the early 1930s, which included establishing a school for dramatic arts um, based on pure Negro expression at Bethune-Cookman University, an historically back, black college in Daytona Beach, Florida. Zora got on my radar because of a book she wrote, Barracoon, that was, that was only published earlier this month. I think on May 8th, it was published for the first time. So that's called being published posthumously. The book is about Cujo Cajola Lewis of Africatown, Alabama, um, who was the last knowing, last, excuse me, living survivor of slavery when Zora met him in 1927. She befriended uh, Cujo and uh, saw him several times, photographed him, and tried to record his language verbatim because he had a mixture of Africanese and American um, in his language. And I'm using that phrase, Africanese, very broadly because um, there are no such thing as Africaners. They're people from different countries and different regions, but we can't get into the nuances there. Cujo Lewis told his story to Zora including how he was captured in Africa, how many of his uh, fellow villagers were murdered by uh, the tribe that captured him, and how then he was held in a barracks, which is called a barracon in Spanish, explaining the title of the book. And then he was um, uh, uh, taken to the U.S., um, to what was America at the time, on the last ever slave ship, the Clotilda, C-L-O-T-I-L-D-A, Clotilda, and brought to the U.S. in 1859. It was the last slave ship ever to come to the U.S. And then he lived as a slave from 1859 until 1860, the, the mid-1860s, whenever in the state, I don't know what state he was in, I assume it was Alabama or Mississippi, where the Emancipation Proclamation kicked in. And then, of course, we had 
um, eventually the 13th Amendment, where all slaves were, slaves were freed. But he, he was a slave until the end of the war, and then he went to this town in Alabama. Um, Zora's account of Cujo Lewis was not published until, as I said, this month. She faced a great deal of discrimination as a black woman who was a writer. She wrote and published a number of books, including Their Eyes Were Watching God in 1937 and Moses, Man, and the Mountain in 1939. She ran up against a white power structure. She took great interest in how white men felt it their right to sexually assault black women, and she wrote pieces about this. She called that um, white men exercising paramour rights. In 1952, she covered the trial of Ruby uh, McClellan, a black woman who was charged with murdering a white doctor and politician who McClellan had said forced her to have sex and then bear his child. But Zora didn't cover the whole trial because she got into a pay dispute with the paper that had sent her to cover it, and she quit over that pay dispute. Um, but she celebrated, Zora celebrated that trial because it was the first time a black woman had ever been allowed to testify as to the paternity of her child by a white man. Then as Zora got closer to the end of her life, she worked for Pan American World Airways Technical Library in 1957 where she was fired for being, quote, too educated, unquote, for the job. Ultimately, Zora ended up again back in Florida where she had difficulty finding jobs. She was a substitute teacher and then even as a hotel maid. She died destitute in January of 1960 of a stroke and heart disease. She was discovered after her death and Eatonville, Florida now has a library named after her and an, and an annual festival named after her. You know, I have Zora here in the idealist category because she was a product of a time when be being a black professional woman was incredibly difficult. She railed against the white-black power dynamics. She was willing to criticize America during World War II and wrote that it was ironic that America would enter the war um, because the people... Uh, here's a quote from her. The people who claim that it's a noble thing to die for freedom and democracy wax frothy if anyone points out the inconsistency of their morals. We, too, consider machine gun bullets good laxatives for heathens who get constipated with the toxic ideas about a country of their own, unquote. She was not happy with Brown versus Board of Education because she feared that integrating schools would be the demise of black uh, teachers teaching about black culture. But I have her here as an idealist because she wasn't afraid to speak up, to speak truth to power. And unfortunately, Zora Neale Hurston paid a great price for that speaking up. When I come back, I'll do my second segment of LA 2.0. If I sound angry, I am, because she was treated poorly. Thank you. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging, and an intensive outpatient program. 
If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. It's home improvement season, and you know there's lots of projects to tackle. Here's one that won't break the budget. Get your carpet cleaned by Zero Res. If you have pets and kids banging around, you know your carpet needs some love. This month, get three rooms Zero Resified, starting at $139. Plus, this month, save $50 when you get your Air Ducts Zero Res clean. Call 952-ZERO-RES or visit ZeroResMN.com. Zero Res. Spell it backward or forward, it spells the same. Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens is the first green cemetery in Minnesota. It's a beautiful, peaceful place where burials are celebrations of life with as little impact on the environment as possible. Tony Weber founded it because he wants to leave a green legacy for his grandchildren, something many of us might feel. Learn more, visit the website mngreengraves.com. Give them a call. The goal is so meaningful, so positive, it might be right for you. Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. And we are back on Ellie 2.0. Hi, this is Ellie Krug on AM 950. I need to say that. Um, well, I, we got done with that first segment. I actually ran out of time talking about Zora, but you heard me at the very end as the voiceover or the music um, was coming in that I was angry. Um, if you heard anger in my voice about Zora, there was a reason for that, because she was treated incredibly poorly. She was. And, um, you know, it's just uh, one of those things. So, one of those things that are quite unacceptable. And that's actually part of what makes me an idealist. Um, and so in this big B slot, the second half of this show always, I talk about my work as an idealist. Um, God love um, Chad Larson, who is the uh, uh, station owner and manager and, and the team here, because they say, Ellie, we want you to talk about your work. I mean, where else can you get to do that? And frankly, I hope you understand I'm not a narcissist. I'm not focused on the world. I mean, as it's all about Ellie Krug, it's not actually. But um, I get a platform to talk about idealism. And as an idealist, the underlying question always is, does what I do make a difference? 
I don't know, listeners. You're listening to me. Does this, does this show make any difference to you? I don't know. I'd love to hear from you at Ellie uh, 2.0 radio at gmail.com. You can let me know that or check out my website at elliekrug.com. But I'm always wondering, does it make a difference of what I'm doing? And um, many of us idealists, we toil and we push and push and 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 we press, we go against the edge of the envelope. We're always pushing and hoping that somehow it's all working. So let me relate to you an experience that I had recently. I mean, like we're talking within the last two weeks about where I actually found that my work really did matter, that it was making a difference. So I was giving a talk. I was set to give a talk at... Um, to Ramsey County, that would be St. Paul, department heads and managers, about 200 people in the room. It was my signature talk, Gray Area Thinking, which is about human inclusivity, not simply about being transgender, but about inclusivity generally for all humans. And so, you know, I mean, I've given, I don't know, we're, we're heading into the 800 range, I think, of professional speaking that I've done in terms of talks. And, and usually the way it works is somebody introduces me, they say some things about me nice, and then I get up and I start my training. Well, for Ramsey County, in front of these 200 people, the woman in introducing me was a woman named Elizabeth. Um, and that's her real name, and I actually... Um, Actually, it's Elizabeth Tolzman. She has given me permission to talk about her. I actually met Elizabeth last year when I spoke at the Bloomington Civic Plaza. That would be City Hall in Bloomington, Minnesota, where I did an evening of gray area thinking training and transgender 101 for the public. So Elizabeth was there. I met her, and she went through my gray area thinking training. Um, in the time since then, Elizabeth took a new job with Ramsey County. And I think that she uh, may have had something to do with the fact about me being selected as a speaker for this very important meeting with 200 people from Ramsey County leadership. At any rate, the room was full. And I'm seated at the front of the room, and Elizabeth goes to the podium and asks everyone to take their seats. And, you know, for the most part, the beginning of all this was the way most introductions go. You know, she talked, um, she talked about me, about the work that I do, shared about my book, shared about knowing me and having heard me speak before. And, um, and you know, some of my accomplishments in education. And, you know, at that point, she's starting to wrap up. And I'm thinking, okay, well, it's time for me to get, get ready here. And, and I always take a deep breath. And then just when I thought that she was done introducing me, she picked up a clicker and clicked toward the screen behind her. What she showed was a $5 bill with a piece of hotel stationery overlaid on the bill. So think of $5 bill flat, flat, and you could see a part, you could see the $5 part of it, and then there was a piece of letterhead, stationery, you know, the kind that are at the, you know, on the, on the desks at hotels that usually have the hotel logo on it. This was a logo from a ski resort. And then Elizabeth, after clicking on that picture, told the story of listening to my training last year, where I talked about our commonalities. All humans have commonalities. And by the way, they far outweigh our differences. And where I spoke last year about the need for all of us to see people who are invisible, the people who are around us that are invisible. And actually, I'm just telling you this right now. And not more than 15 minutes ago, I looked at an email from somebody who told me he had been at that training, that training of the 200 managers who said he took to heart 
my words about invisibility and that he's been looking and seeing invisible people and acknowledging them ever since I gave that talk. At any rate, Elizabeth shares about how she heard me speak about the need to see invisible people. You know, and when I do that training, when I talk about the invisible people, I talk about the water pour at the restaurant. Because um, here in the Twin Cities, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but very often our restaurants are segregated. I'm sorry that they are. And your servers are very often white people. And the people, though, who come and bring your bread and who pour your water very often are people of color. Many, many times those people are people who are foreign-born, and English is not their primary language. You just wait. You look at the next time you go to a restaurant. But you can extrapolate from this from anything. It's the, you know, it's the people around, you know, behind the counter at McDonald's, whatever, okay? But I train and I say, see those people. And then I go forth and I use the example of a water pourer and I act as if I am a water pourer. And then I say, as the person, as I'm pretending to pour water into your glass, I say, please remember that as that human is pouring the water, they too have the same commonalities. I call them the four commonalities. I'm not going to get into those at the moment. Same four commonalities as you have at that very moment as they're pouring the water. And I tell listeners, I ask the people in my training, please remember these people. So then Elizabeth relayed that she took that training, my words to heart, and she shared that because of what I taught, she is now more aware of the invisible people, just like the man who just texted me right before I got on the air here to tape this show. And, and she related that the picture on the screen, that is of the $5 bill overlaid with the stationery, was her proof to demonstrate that she had listened to me. She must have planned to take that photo knowing that she was going to be introducing me in the future. The $5 bill was a tip for housekeeping staff at the hotel. And the stationery, as I said, was from a ski resort. She had written on the stationery, quote, thank you for your service, exclamation mark, unquote, and then signed her name and her room number. It was so unexpected on my part for me to see that, to hear Elizabeth, this woman, recount that she had heard me train. And then she took my words and then she started acting on them. Oh, let me just tell you, for me, Ellie Krug, idealist, last identity that I will have before I die, my most important identity, idealist. To hear Elizabeth share those words spiked my idealist heart, idealistic heart. Oh, hundredfold, let me just tell you. And I got up, I mean, she was done at that point. I got up and I hugged her and I thanked her for sharing how my words had rippled to her. And it is all about rippling. It is. And actually, after that, I was a qu quite a bit speechless. And I, if you've ever heard me speak, you know that being speechless is not a problem that I have. I always overspeak. I do. And it was hard for me at that. I, you know, I, had, I totally diverted from my talk and I acknowledged um, about the rippling and about how kind that... Elizabeth had been to share that with me. Now, this is not the first time I had heard about my words rippling, but that often has been shared in private. 
just like the email I just received before I got on the air here. But never, ever in all of the time that I've been doing my work has anyone ever shared in such a public way about my words rippling to them. And this was in front of 200 people. Now, we are a society of storytellers and story listeners. And when we hear the stories of how other people ripple to us, you know what? And when we re relate those stories to others, it, words then double ripple. And it was this double rippling that was so incredible in the room. Because now, obviously, it, it appears that Elizabeth Sharing rippled to other people in that room because I've since heard of it. And yes, this is absolute proof that my work, what I call my lucky work, because I am so incredibly lucky to be able to do this work, to come into the homes of people, or excuse me, the minds of people, to occupy them for even a few minutes, and to know that I'm making a difference, well, it just doesn't get any better than that. And you know, I practice what I preach. I do the same thing when I go to hotels beginning about four years. Every place I stay, the housekeeping gets a tip and they get a note from me saying thank you. And in fact, on many of my notes, I write that I know that it's not easy. Well, that's an it for another show. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world with Ellie 2.0 on AM 950. If you've liked what you enjoyed, email me at Ellie 2.0 radio. You get two dot road radio at gmail.com. A big thanks to Hunter Hawes for my uh, production as my, as my producer here. You rock, Hunter, and everyone else. Have a great week. I'll be back with you next Monday. Thank you.